Um, good morning, church. My name's Cameron, one of the pastors here, and I've got to warn you up front that this sermon is sponsored by Red Bull, okay? I've got a baby that will not sleep. Y'all pray for me. I trust your prayers, and I have trust in the Spirit of God. So today, I am covering Matthew chapter 5. As we deal with the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, I'm mainly focusing in verses 13 through 20. And I've entitled this sermon simply, Religion versus the Gospel. Religion versus the Gospel. Now, I want to begin our time this morning talking about mushrooms. Not magic mushrooms, to some of your disappointment, but the non-psychedelic variety that many people hunt and gather as a hobby. Out of curiosity, anybody hunt mushrooms as a hobby? Okay, there's a few people, so you know far more about this than I do. But what I do know, growing up in the mountains of East Tennessee, that if you take up mushroom hunting as a hobby, you have to be very careful. Because some mushrooms are very appetizing and some are deadly. Some are good for food, some are fatal. And you, so you have to learn to tell a difference between the poisonous and the non-poisonous variety. And this can be incredibly difficult to do because they look very similar in appearance, so you have to pay attention to the details. So here's how nerdy I am. I looked up a mushroom expert. Mushroom expert Travis Cotter uses the morel mushroom as an example. He says that morels and false morels have very similar appearances. Both have dimples on the surface and are partially hollow on the inside. However, the false morel is even brain-like on the inside, while the true morel is perfectly and symmetrically hollow. So the point is, you have to take a deeper look all the way to the core to tell the difference between the two, the poisonous and the non-poisonous. And City Light, I believe that in the Sermon on the Mount, we can't cover all the sermon, but the big idea is that Christ is trying to help us do something similar yet greater. He is calling all of us this morning to take a hard look at two different proposed pathways to God. And these pathways look very similar, but understand they end up in different destinations. Their outsides look a lot the same, but their insides are different. And one pathway leads to everlasting life, and one pathway leads to eternal death. I think when you take the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, his ultimate aim is to contrast the religious pathway with the gospel pathway. And his heart and my heart this morning is to show you that the gospel is better in every single way. So let me do a quick recap of our series to this point. We understand that Jesus has burst onto the scene and he brought with him a new age of God's kingdom. And John the Baptist and Christ himself makes it clear that to go into the kingdom, you've got to turn from your sins and trust in the Savior Jesus Christ. Then in Matthew 4, we see that the devil nor diseases are any match for God's kingdom in Jesus. As Jesus goes about the countryside preaching the gospel... People are being healed by their, from their infirmities, and demons are being cast out. And so this powerful demonstration of the kingdom, as you might imagine, it causes a very large crowd to gather. And so Christ takes that opportunity after he gives a kingdom demonstration to give a kingdom discourse. He takes the posture of a teaching rabbi. And so he takes his place up on the mount, or more accurately said, probably a plateau, and it overlooked the Sea of Galilee. And his position probably functioned as a natural amphitheater. And he begins to teach his disciples that Christianity is based on a set of values 
that differs drastically from the world. I mean, you don't have to do much, but simply look around and then look around and look at the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll see that they're drastically different from this world system. But not only is Christianity different from the world, I think, again, the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is this. He's showing us that Christianity is drastically different than religion. Now, here's why I say that. Traditionally, many people have simply seen the Sermon on the Mount as a list of moral imperatives to follow, compelling ethical teaching for Christians to help us live as Christians. And it is that, but it's more than that. It's not just simply two clear choices as it relates to following God, disobeying Him or obeying Him. I don't think that's the case. Rather, if you fast forward to the end of the sermon in chapter 7, it helps unlock the greater sermon's meaning. At the end of chapter 7, Jesus puts before the people two pathways. He uses the imagery of two paths, two trees, two houses. And on the surface, they look very similar, but again, they end in different destinations. One path leads to life, but the other to destruction. One tree has good fruit, the other bad fruit. One house has a good foundation, the other a faulty foundation. So again, the Sermon on the Mount isn't just to pep us up, to get us to be more obedient. He's not just contrasting obedience and disobedience. Rather, he's contrasting two different types of people. And on the surface, they look really, really similar. It's not that one group's being obedient and the other isn't. They're actually both being obedient. They're both trying to follow the Ten Commandments. They're both trying to pray. They're both giving. He's contrasting the religious leaders with his followers. And throughout this sermon, he's saying, as he lays out the two pathways, that one is poisonous and leads to death, and one is good and leads to life. So that's why I'm saying this sermon's about religion and the gospel. And as he lays out these contrasts, here's the main thing we learn from chapter 5. And it should come up on the screen. Faith in Christ alone leads to life. But religious activity alone leads to death. That's the clear contrast Christ is trying to make in this sermon. Now, a message like this should jolt all of us this morning because cultural Christianity is embedded in our our society to such a degree that it's likely many of us are trying to take the false pathway to God known as religious activity. A lot of us fall into that. I was, even as a 10-year-old, trying to fall into that as a young man, that if I just was better, worked harder, was a good boy, I would make it to heaven. In a religious city like Omaha, in a blue-collar place like Nebraska, it's likely that, that some of us are trying to do all we can to muster up enough strength to get to heaven. The guilt you feel in your heart is causing you to want to pray harder, give more, increase your church attendance, all in an effort to try to get right with God. But Jesus is going to show us that you can do all the stuff of religion and you can still miss out on the kingdom of God. You need to hear this morning that you don't get right with God through religious activity. Rather, you get right with God through Christ's saving activity on your behalf. Here's the key difference. Religion says, I obey, therefore I get accepted by God. But the gospel's different. The gospel says, if you place your faith in Jesus, you're accepted. Therefore, you obey out of joy and willing obedience. You see the difference in that? So maybe you're here this morning and you're exhausted with God. Because it seems like you can't ever measure up. 
Or maybe you're here and you gave up on God a long time ago because you realize your life can never stack up with his standards. Whatever the case may be this morning, I'm praying that God gives you a compelling picture of the gospel and that you leave seeing this morning that Christ measured up on your behalf. That's what the sermon's about. So as we contrast religion and the gospel, as we consider the fact that the gospel's better in every way, here's the first big point that we see in this passage. Number one, the gospel is more attractive than religion. The gospel is so much more attractive than religion. And so in point one, we deal with the fact that Christianity has a better relationship, in a sense, with the world. Let me read verses 13 and 14. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And so Jesus instructs his disciples here. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. They're to be like a luminous city set high atop a hill, shining light into darkness. Now, when Christ uses these metaphors, he's speaking to the drastic difference between the way we disciples relate to the world and the way that religion relates to the world. Two groups here are doing good deeds, but one group is doing good deeds in a selfish way, under a basket. It makes no sense. But the other group is doing good deeds in a selfless way, in ways that bless and attract the attention of a watching world. I like the way Tim Keller put it when he said this, Christianity is attracted to and attractive to people you don't agree with. People who don't live the way you live, who don't share your same belief system. But religious people are turned off by and alienating to people who don't agree with them. That's been true in my own experience, dealing with religious people, a past religious person myself. Now, when Christ tells his followers that they're to function as the salt of the earth, understand that in the ancient days that salt functioned as a preservative. You don't put salt in something like water unless you have a sore throat because water does not go bad. But meat does go bad. So they put salt in meat so that it would not rot away. Similarly, Jesus is saying that the world is wasting away because of sin. And Christ's followers are called on to go out and to serve the world. And by doing good deeds, we garner goodwill and we eventually get to share the good news of the gospel. See, sin eats away at life, but Jesus gave away his own life so that all who would hear and respond might have eternal life. If you think about it, in history, Christians have gained a reputation for for going in when things are falling apart. As opposed to running away from the mess, the church of Christ throughout the annals of history, they run to the mess with the light of Jesus. One compelling story I remember from history is that the in the medieval European empire, Christians caught the eye of that empire for this reason. When the bubonic plague, the black, the black death struck, uh, many family members would leave their sick loved ones and get out of there for fear of catching it themselves. But the Christians stayed back, and many of them contracted the disease themselves out of their selfless care. 
mean, Christian missionaries continue today to go into closed countries. And statistics say that there are more martyrs now than there ever have been in history. See, when we see neighborhoods falling apart, we don't look the other way. We go in and we plant churches. We plant churches in places like Midtown and in West Omaha, where it looks good on the outside, but we know people need the gospel. When we see people falling apart emotionally, that does not turn us off. Rather, we go in with the encouragement of Jesus. You see, Christians, they run to the mess, but religious people, they run away from the mess. And why do they do this? Well, I think the reason is they are too busy being stuck under the basket, under the bushel. They're trapped under their bowl. They're so busy working on their personal righteousness that they can't see beyond the bowl to see the the real world around them. See, they're not salty. They're not acting as a preservative because all they care about is themselves. They're trying to work their way to heaven, oblivious to the fact they're getting nowhere. They withdraw from society holding up because they consider the inhabitants of the world to be worse sinners than them. As, a being, as opposed to being attracted to, to messy people, they're repulsed by them because they're afraid if they get too close, they'll be tainted in the process. They only hang out with morally superior people, not understanding that because of our sin, we're all morally inferior. But again, Christians go to the darkness and it's for a drastically different reason. We run to the mess not to get the attention of God, not so he will be impressed with our brave efforts. Our motivation for our mission is the fact that Jesus Christ himself came to us in our mess. You see, we can't get to God, but the good news of the gospel is that he got to us by sending his son Jesus Christ. No amount of good works we could ever do would ever cancel out our sin debt, but that's why Christ came. He put the penalty we deserved on his shoulders. He died the death we deserved to die on the cross. See, our acceptance with God the Father is not based on our good works. If you're trying to get to heaven through your efforts, stop right now. Rather, your acceptance is based on God's good work on your behalf through Jesus Christ, his Son. Notice again verse 16, in the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who's in heaven. See, through the gospel, people like us, sinful people, God the Creator becomes God our Heavenly Father. And then the Heavenly Father sends all of us out on a rescue mission. He launches us out into the world. Not as morally superior people. We don't go out looking down on people, but we simply relate as fellow sinners who've learned the secret to forgiveness who know what it's like to become saints out of our sinfulness. And we do the very best we can to to serve people, to lay our lives down for them. And then in the same breath, we humbly confront them with the same gospel message that set us free. Now keep in mind, the Bible makes it clear that the gospel will always be offensive. Christ says himself in the Sermon on the Mount that we will face persecution. Biblical beliefs will be repugnant to many people in our culture. But for some, people whom God is calling to himself, it will not be repugnant. He has many other sons and daughters that he is drawing into a relationship with himself. And when we share the gospel in a winsome way, it won't be repugnant. It will resonate in their hearts the same way it's resonated in many of our hearts. See, in a pride-filled world, our prayer is that they'll be attracted to our humility, that they'll be drawn to our convictional kindness. Yes, we 
We love them enough to tell them the truth, but we always do so in a winsome way. And most importantly of all, they'll be, they'll be drawn to our far superior message that we do not have to work our fingers to the bone to get to God because God came to us through the person of Jesus Christ. See, religiosity and religious people, they only bring condemnation. But gospel people, and the gospel, it's attractive because it gives the people hope. So the gospel is better than religion because it is more attractive. It's still it's controversial. It will be offensive, but it is more attractive than religion. And so as Christ continues his contrast, here's the second way we see the gospel's better than religion. Number two, the gospel is more impactful than religion. The gospel has a greater impact. And we see this in verses 17 through 20. So if in the first point we're concerned about Christianity's relationship with the world, now we're concerned about Christianity's relationship with our own hearts. So let me start with verse 20. And then we'll work backwards through this passage. Now, she read this passage, and as I read this, just think about the effect this has on you. Think about the effect it had on that original audience. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when the disciples heard about the fatherhood of God in verse 16, maybe they think, well, because God loves us, He's relaxed his commandments. He doesn't demand as much out of us. But again, imagine their reaction. And what is your reaction when you hear those words? That to go to heaven, our righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Think about how daunting that is. The religious leaders, they worked hard at righteousness. They practiced vocational obedience. I mean, it's what they did as a living. They had the most intense checklist imaginable and they spent all their days trying to dot their I's and cross their T's. This might be like Jesus saying, like, hey, to get to heaven, you have to be a better golfer than Tiger Woods. To get to heaven, you have to be a better singer and dancer than JT himself, Justin Timberlake. Hashtag man crush. I'm with Gavin on that one. You've got to be richer than Warren Buffett to get to heaven. You've got to be more joy-filled than Papa Jack to make it to heaven. I mean, if that's the standard, then none of us will get there. You know, if the disciples are taking notes at this point, in my mind, I get this image of their papyrus scroll being torn to pieces and them tossing in the air. I mean, who can actually live this out? But here's the key difference. We have to understand that Christ isn't talking about a greater quantity of righteousness. More, 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 better, better, better. He's talking about a different quality of righteousness. That's the key thing we have to see. And verse 19 points us toward this. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does not does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This verse, in a very interesting way, is teaching us that it's not about personal obedience when it comes to making it to heaven. And it's interesting because it seems here that Jesus is saying that there will be some people that make it into the kingdom that didn't do that well at obedience. He's saying there's some people here that relax the commandments and maybe taught other people to do the same, to relax the commandments. Now, Christ isn't especially pleased with this, and their rewards will be diminished. They'll be least in the kingdom, but they're still going to get in. So again, if it's based on obedience, uh, 
It's not based on obedience to get to heaven because people here don't seem to be obedient. And then when we consider the fact that the religious leaders excelled in personal righteousness, so much better than we could ever dream of being, and Jesus makes it clear here, hey, they're out too, they can't get in. What becomes obvious, he's not talking about quantity. Christ is saying we have to have a different quality altogether. So here's what it means, if you've read that and been shocked, here's what it means that your righteousness has to exceed that of religious leaders. They had an external righteousness and forcefully altered their actions. But what we need is an internal righteousness that fundamentally changes our heart affections. Leave that up there for a second. Let me say that one more time. The Pharisees had an external righteousness and they forcefully altered their actions. What we need instead is an internal righteousness that fundamentally changes our heart affections. And when our hearts are changed, new actions will naturally follow our hearts. Now, I could give you an illustration, but let me give you illustrations that Christ himself gives as he indicts the religious people, and then he gives the requirement that he demands. So, first of all, in another place, later in Matthew, concerning the Pharisees, he gives this graphic picture. Matthew twenty three twenty seven says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear outwardly beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. He says, this is what you are if you're trying to get to heaven based on your good works. On the outside, you look really pretty and polished. You look pretty good, like a beautiful white mausoleum, a tomb. But understand, on the inside, you're dead. You're full of dead people's bones. That's true of people that only have an external righteousness. Well, then Jesus gives us a picture of the righteousness that he wants us to have, that we should have, as he confronts a Pharisee named Nicodemus in John 3, 3. So a man who had external righteousness goes to Jesus, and Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, the subtitle of our sermon series, Matthew, is the Upside-Down Kingdom. And understand that if you want to enter into the upside-down kingdom, you first have to be transformed from the inside out. Because we are sinners by nature and by choice, a fundamental change has to happen. We have to be reborn spiritually. And we become reborn on the inside. We become changed when we realize that Christ alone is sufficient to remove the stain of sin. When we turn from our sins and trust in Him, we're born again. And the Bible teaches us something incredible. After that, we get the very righteousness of Jesus, his goodness, credited to our account. Thus the secret. That's how we get a greater quality of righteousness. You actually get the righteousness of Jesus imputed to your account. Now let me back up and read further what Jesus said in verses 17 and 18. He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you that until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so rather than relaxing the law, Jesus is saying here that I have fulfilled the law perfectly on your behalf. And when you read through the Sermon on the Mount and you compare it to the character of Jesus, you'll quickly see that he's the only one who has lived that sermon out perfectly. Therefore, Christ 
the Beatitudes, the beautiful scriptures we read about in verses 2 through 12, all the law, all the sermon, he has fulfilled all of that on your behalf. Because you think about it, in the Beatitudes, we read that blessed are the merciful. And though Jesus was full of mercy, he received zero mercy, didn't he? In the way that he was treated by the religious leaders and as he was crucified. The Beatitudes say that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But though Jesus was perfectly pure at the crucifixion, the Father turned his face away from him. The Beatitudes say that blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But yet Jesus, he got no earthly inheritance in that moment. He was disenfranchised. The Beatitudes say that blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. But Jesus wasn't satisfied. On the cross, he cried out, he said, I thirst. So I'm trying to get you to see is that Christ himself fulfilled every letter of the law including the Sermon on the Mount for you. And when you trust in Him, not only does He remove all the stain of your sins, but in place of that, you get every bit, every drip of His righteousness. Though we we are not meek by nature, we gain an inheritance. Jesus received no mercy, so He could lavish all of us with His mercy and His grace. Think about the Father in heaven turned His face away from the perfectly pure one so that impure people like us could enter into a renewed relationship with himself. Understand that because of Jesus Christ, when God the Father looks at you, he sees someone perfectly performing the sermon of his Son. We are counted as righteous. The gospel, therefore, is much more impactful than religion because it changes us at the very core of who we are. And then over time, this imputed righteousness or this credited righteousness... It works its way out in actual living. Again, our actions will always follow our hearts. Then Jesus goes on in the sermon to give us example after example of how this fleshes out. He does more comparison, religion versus the gospel. And you'll notice that the religious people, all they care about is the external act. But Christ always drives it back home to the heart of the matter. Let's just do two here as we wrap up. First of all, murder. Look at verses 21 through 23. Again, the contrast. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Just as an interesting side note, that word fool there is actually translated from an Aramaic word that was a cuss word. So basically, if you're cussing somebody, if you're calling them a fool, then you're liable to the hell of fire. And so religious people, they are only concerned about physically murdering somebody. As long as you don't choke somebody to death, you're okay. You can live your life with hate in your heart, and that's okay. But Jesus says no. If you disdain people, if you despise them, if you're indifferent to them... In a very real sense, you are killing them. Think about this. Maybe you've done this to people in your families, your friend circles. You, in essence, throw them away by holding a grudge against them. Have nothing to do with them. Or you assassinate their character through the medium of gossip. When we murder people all the time without actually doing it. But Jesus goes on to say that, hey, rather than retaliating, my ethic is that I want you to reconcile 
He says a part of your worship is that you should actually leave your offering if you're at odds with somebody and go and do the best you can to be reconciled to that person. And the grace and the power we get for this, because reconciliation is hard, but yet God pursued us and he reconciled us through his son Jesus. And he will give us the grace to pursue reconciliation with other people. And secondly, lust, just another example here. Jesus says in verses 27 and 28, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, the physical act. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This kind of works two ways. Now, first of all, understand that Christians hold to a very high sexual ethic. If you're not a Christian, understand that that's what we do. And our ethic is that there's no sexual activity permitted outside the marital covenant. But here's why it's so high. And all you promiscuous players, listen up at this point, okay? When you desire or participate in sex outside of marriage, in essence, you're saying this. I want to have physical, external intimacy, but I want to divorce that from internal, emotional intimacy. When you're sexually active, yet you refuse to move toward marriage with the person you're active with, this is what's happening. You want physical intimacy, but you're trying to divorce that from personal intimacy. You're holding yourself back because of your desire to hang on to independence. But Jesus is saying here that you cannot disconnect the heart from the sexual act. It is absolutely impossible. And so to lust after somebody is actually to commit adultery of the heart if you're not married to that person or if they're married to somebody else. And conversely, we could say that if you're having sex with somebody you're not committed to and don't care about, it's doing more damage to yourself and that person than you probably realize. You can't divorce the heart attitude from the actual act. Two examples. Now, let me close with this. Here are a few lines from a hymn, an old hymn that I like from William Cooper. He was a a great hymnist, battled depression, and he just clung to Christ's righteousness on his behalf when he didn't see hardly any or none in himself. And this song is called Love Constraining to Obedience. And listen to the last four lines here. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. See, City Light, this is the essence of gospel-centered obedience. We don't obey begrudgingly to try to get to God. That's religion. Rather, we obey delightfully because God got to us through Jesus Christ. We've been accepted, therefore we obey. That is the gospel. So City Light, today, and as you continue to study in the weeks ahead, the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see there are two clear pathways laid out before you. And they look very similar, much like those mushrooms. And yet, they lead to two drastically different destinations. One pathway is poisonous and will take away your life. The other pathway is life-giving and will give you eternal life. One pathway has the appearance of godliness, but the other has the very power of God contained in the message. And here are the two pathways. Religious activity alone leads to death, but faith in Christ alone leads to life. And my prayer this morning is, as you consider these two pathways, as you make your choice, as you see the battle between religion and the gospel, that the Spirit of God will help you to see that the gospel is always better. Let's stand and pray together. And then Justin will lead us in some more worship.
Father, we, um, we thank you for your teaching. Uh, God, we know that every single part of your word is inspired from Genesis to Revelation. But God, we're also thankful that you've preserved for us teaching from your son's very mouth. And oh God, we thank you this morning for the warning and the encouragement. The warning, God, that we have to be careful to not play religious games. Rather, we should base our right standing with you on the provision of Christ on the cross. So, Father, if there's any fogginess or confusion about the pathway we're taking, clarify that. And my prayer this morning is you would draw many people to yourself through your gospel. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we... Let's have a prayer team in the back. Uh, Pastors are typically back there. You might see people with a lanyard on. Uh, A decision to follow Jesus is personal. You do not need to go between. We're not priests. But I encourage you to tell somebody about your decision you're making. The gospel, faith in Jesus is meant to be lived out publicly. And we'd love to have the privilege of helping you work that out in your life. So Justin, lead us, my friend.